everyone. Welcome to the Jesus Famous Podcast. This is our 170th episode, and we're here because we want to see Jesus famous in your life. So that means we want to see him honored, glorified, loved, esteemed, appreciated, adored, revered, followed. We want to see that happen in your everyday life. Kind of like Paul at the beginning of so many of his epistles, laying down who Jesus is so that we could then respond to all that truth. That's what we want to see happen on this podcast. The fame of Christ run in your heart. If you don't know me, I'm Nate Holdridge. I pastor a church called Calvary Monterey on the California Central Coast, and I love talking about Jesus. Uh, On today's episode, this is going to be a goodie. We're joined by Pastor Wesley Town, and we're going to get into the subject of uh, about anxiety. Uh, anxiety is a huge issue in our current time. So many people, whether they name it that or not, really wrestle with it. And I think sometimes in the church, there's been a stigma attached to it and a, even a misunderstanding about some of the passages in scripture that might talk about worry or fear, things like that. And so rather than othering people or looking down on people who feel anxious or worried about things, uh, Wesley's going to join us today to kind of walk us through this subject and uh, some good counsel from scripture and some best practices when dealing with anxiety. Just a little bit about Wesley though. He's the founder of a nonprofit ministry called Better Days. And their whole goal is to bring awareness and hope and education to all things mental health and suffering, uh, especially within the Christian community. And uh, his major effort right now in that direction is as the host and leader of, our, of the uh, Better Days podcast. Um, but he's also uh, currently writing um, a book on this subject and then behind the scenes uh, building up that Better Days ministry and team so that there's a lot of people communicating about this subject. Uh, Wesley holds a bachelor's and two master's degrees and um, we got to know each other this last year in a small little pastoral cohort that we were in together and he's just an all-around great guy, warm, kind, loving, and uh, I know you're going to be blessed by this talk with Wesley. So Wesley, Welcome to the Jesus Famous Podcast, man. Thanks for coming on. Nate, so good to be on the Jesus Famous Podcast, and that intro was too kind. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that. It's just a joy to be with you. Uh, like you were saying, we've really connected over the last year in the pastor's group cohort, just encouraging each other and walking through so many complexities over the last three years and having some sort of pastoral support um, friendship group has been immensely amazing. And I'd be remiss to say you actually started it and led it. So uh, I'm just so honored to know you. Uh, I, I really appreciate all that you do, your heart for Jesus, uh, even the fact that your podcast is called Jesus Famous. Like, that's the thing, right? Amen. That's the thing we all want to do. And uh, he's the reason you and I get to do what we do. And so what a blessing, man. Amazing to be on this podcast with you. Thanks, man. Yeah, one of my highlights of 2022 was when I got a random text message from Wesley on a random midweek day. And he said, hey, man, 
I'm I'm in Monterey today. Let's hang out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was great. It was great to spend oh, some time together. That was amazing. So Wesley, before I ask you some serious questions, I got I got to clear the air a little bit because if somebody goes and Google's Wesley Town, uh, they're going to find the Better Days podcast. They're going to find your pastoral work and ministry, but they're also going to find a Martin Luther College Knights soccer player named Wesley Town. And I got to I got to make sure it, was that you? Is is that you? Do you have a, a soccer history? No, no soccer history. Okay. Never played soccer. I was an athlete growing up. I ran track. I did cross country. I played basketball, but never soccer. So that certainly is not me. Okay, great. Because if that was you, I would definitely get your stats on the podcast. You know, let people know what you what you accomplished in your collegiate career. But yeah, I had a feeling it wasn't you. If you if you look up Nate Holdridge, I don't. It's probably buried in the results a little bit now. But uh, there's actually a guy my age who when he was 18 so we were born both in 1978 when he was 18 he tragically died and he is from baltimore and he was a runner and so there's literally a nate holdridge memorial race that this small little community near baltimore runs every year and i've always thought to myself like i want to run that race one of these years to just show up at the Nate Holdridge memorial race and just freak everybody out but uh, you have to but, do it but it's not me yeah it's not me and this guy is not you it's imposters yeah total imposters <laughs> so i, I want to start off wesley just with kind of the big picture as people are getting to know you um, and your, you know, your heart, your ministry, uh, your level of interest in this subject. Um, you know, I, I think there might be some people in our modern time who they've kind of hopped on the mental health anxiety bandwagon and kind of have like read the, read the, the tea leaves and said, Oh, okay. Uh, a lot of people are interested in this, so I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. And of course that can be useful. That's one way to go about things, but it seems like you kind of backed into it in a different way where it became really important to you personally. So I, I would love to hear why, why are you interested in mental health, including, uh, dealing with anxiety? Yeah. Great question. I think for me, there's two lanes to this. One, when I was in graduate school, I took some really amazing counseling classes and we started to delve into these subjects, just the human experience alongside of my exegesis and theological studies. And I think when I was in those courses, studying, thinking through these subjects, I realized how important it is to be a pastor that not only understands the nuance and context and history and background of scripture and exegesis, but also understanding the human condition, what mm. people are going through, what people are processing, the real stuff of human life that's entering into the church every week. I found that to be incredibly valuable and interesting. And I think that's that was like the beginning of maybe my mind desiring to learn more about mm. all the different stuff that people go through, the hard stuff in life. Mm. On another end, 
I think I've struggled with anxiety personally uh, as far back as I can remember, uh, mm. particularly in my adult life. I remember being in college and graduate school. I'm a achiever personality, perfectionist, and sometimes I push myself too hard or I have too high of a bar. And I, I think that that can wear me down at times and create a perfect ecosystem for uh, challenging moments and durations of anxiety. And so for me, I remember being in graduate school, particularly just feeling like I couldn't breathe. My heart was racing all the time. Didn't know what was taking place in my body physiologically. Mm -hmm. And later on, I learned that all of those periods of time and struggles were anxiety. And then when I got into leadership and ministry, uh, I was always in a leadership position in charge of something, vision and staff. And, um, and from the very beginning of that in my adult life, I struggled with anxiety mm. and I felt the pressure and the stress externally of whatever I was doing, but I also put pressure and stress upon myself internally. And I think that created a dynamic of just pretty consistent anxiety um, that I didn't quite understand how to navigate. And I heard all the Christian stuff like, you know, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, just pray more and trust God and your heart and your mind is going to be overwhelmed with peace. And, and I, I'd like to touch on that uh, in this podcast a little bit, but none of it worked. I was praying. I was trusting God, but... I still felt this overwhelming and at times paralyzing reality of anxiety inside of me. Mm. And I think it hit a climax. I started a church at 26 years old in Eugene, Oregon. We came from Hawaii. So I moved from Hawaii to Eugene. That enough. <laughs> That'll break a man. It <laughs> was enough to create anxiety, right? So we got to Eugene started a Bible study in our living room, uh, taught through the Gospel of John. And within three months, there was 90 college students. After a year, uh, it, after a year, there was a good amount of people, I would say probably 100 to 200. But after two years, there was almost 1,000. Wow. So the trajectory of growth was just off the charts. Our third Easter, we met in this huge performing arts center and almost filled up capacity of 2,500 people. Mm. So as I was experiencing this church plant growth trajectory, building systems and pastoring people and equipping and uh, leading and managing and all the different facets of what it means to lead in the local church at a young age, I didn't quite know how to manage the pressures and stresses and all the things that I love to do, but without a lot of margin. And so I would say probably for a period of three years, I was living with overwhelming anxiety. Mm. Uh, I started having panic attacks. I remember um, year four and five on a pretty consistent basis, I would go up to teach on a Sunday. I, I believe at that time, four times on a Sunday. Uh, so three or four times and almost every Sunday I felt like I was blacking out as I was preaching. Mm. 
my body was just worn down, exhausted, and anxiety became this mountain that I had no idea how to climb. Mm. I didn't know how to fix it. I could. I was diagnosed. I went to the doctor uh, multiple times. I couldn't figure out how to manage it, deal with it. It was just this reality of my life that was so heavy and hard and difficult. So I think that after after year five in the church plant, I went on a little sabbatical. Wayne Cordero helped me process through burnout and anxiety mm. and became a mentor of mine. I love and his book way, on the subject. Yeah, yes, it's incredible. He wrote an amazing book um, on kind of leading on empty and mm-hmm. how his his own experience and story and how he learned to live healthy in ministry with a huge leadership uh, burden. And so he really helped me and I processed through a lot. Post that experience, I was able to reflect on my experience and recognize one, there was a really oversimplified teaching that I'd heard over and over and over again repeated about anxiety and Christianity. And I started to dig into that. Second, Mm. I also realized that a lot of my friends were going through a similar experience, but nobody was talking about it. Right. And I think there was a lot of stigma at that point and leaders weren't talking about kind of their inner life stuff still. And I said to myself, I'm just going to talk about it. I'm going to share my experience. I'm going to dig into this subject, both from a theological, biblical, contextual uh, vantage point, but also just the human stuff, like the psychology of uh, mental health and suffering and the realities that people go through. And I think that was the beginning of my venture. And I feel like my calling by experience um, to enter into this space and share my story and really become proficient in understanding this this subject and helping mm-hmm. people to be free and to know that they're not alone. I love that so much, Wesley. I mean, thank you for throwing your life into this for the sake of other people to help us. And also thank you for the honesty in your story. I've heard it a couple of times and it's always so refreshing to hear just that candid recounting of, Hey, this is what I was actually facing. You know, my next, my next question, I think you have colored it in a little bit. I want to ask you, what is anxiety? Um, in case someone's listening and they don't, you know, have experience in this themselves personally, or perhaps they haven't been able to put a label on what they actually are experiencing. Um, I think a lot of what you said in describing your life makes clear what anxiety is, but how would you define it? How would you flesh it out? Yeah, I think anxiety is an inner feeling. So it's an emotion. Uh, It could be apprehension. It could be dread. It could be worry. It could be a combination of feelings inside of our body and when we experience anxiety there's physical arousal in our body meaning neurochemical reactions and physiological reactions inside of our body that we feel a lot of people uh, when they begin to feel anxious there's a nervousness or apprehensiveness or tension in their muscles or they feel restless Some people feel sleep deprived. Most people have a rapid heartbeat or shortness of breath. And so there's a lot of feelings inside of our body physically 
that we feel when we're experiencing anxiety. I think what many people don't understand about anxiety is yeah. it's complex. Mm. Uh, it, it's not a simple human experience and it's, it's really complex. And I think from a Christian perspective, because anxiety is so complex, we have to be thoughtful on how we approach it as a topic in our you know Christian subculture. I think one of the dangers in any complex human experience of suffering, which I include mental health challenges within that big umbrella, is that sometimes we treat complex human experiences with very simplistic cliches and answers. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, this is what anxiety is, and here's the answer for it. And I think that when we do that, that often hurts the people experiencing it rather than helping them. So I, I think one thing that helps to paint this picture is every person experiences normal anxiety. There's really two categories. One is normal anxiety and the other is anxiety disorders. Uh, all people encounter normal anxiety. Uh, everybody uh, has experiences of stressors or dangers or impending deadlines or traumatic events or major life changes where their body is going to naturally feel anxiety, these inner feelings of apprehension or dread or worry or what have you. For example, uh, if you're going to take a major exam at school, you're probably going to feel a little bit of anxiety stirring Mm -hmm. inside of your body. Or I was an athlete all the way through college before games perpetually from when I was in grade school all the way through college, I felt anxiety before almost every single game that I played. And then a lot of people feel anxiety whenever they're going through a major transition in life or a crisis or they're faced with a dangerous situation. And I think just laying that out helps because the stigma around anxiety or any mental health condition, sometimes it's like, oh, you know, these people are experiencing this and here's my answer for it, which is, you know, often a stigma is kind of a negative idea or conclusion. Uh, But when we realize how common this is, it helps to kind of level the reality for all of us. Mm. Like we all experience anxiety. The only difference between normal anxiety and anxiety disorder is anxiety disorders Uh, have a longevity of the experience. So there's a duration that's longer. It's not just a temporary experience based on a situation or context. It's a perpetual experience over time. And it's usually a heightened degree. It could start small and it could begin to increase in kind of the degree of what you're feeling as far as the reactions and the physical symptoms in your body. Mm. And, And usually there's a repetition over time where it begins to disrupt your life. Uh, where you don't go to the places you used to go where you felt comfortable or you, you know, maybe you feel apprehensive in certain situations that trigger it. So uh, anxiety disorders are real because some people, it's not just temporary, it's continual. Now, this is where the complexity comes into play. So there are multiple examples of anxiety disorders or multiple you know, different kinds, pardon me, of anxiety disorders. A lot of people will talk about general anxiety disorders. So if you go to your doctor and you're like, I'm anxious, 
they might diagnose you with general anxiety disorder if it's a certain duration of time. But there's also separation anxiety that can be rooted in, you know, traumatic uh, detachment in your early mm. childhood. Uh, there can be social anxiety based on certain factors of life. For example, if you have to publicly speak all the time, you know, some people have social anxiety around that. If you're very introverted and you're put in situations that uh, you're uncomfortable with, people can develop a social anxiety disorder. But there's also anxiety disorders due to medical conditions. A lot of people that have, like football players, have CTE. They deal with anxiety, panic attacks. Okay. Uh, people that have brain injuries often deal with you know consistent continual anxiety uh hormone changes in the body can lead to depression anxiety so i think that's important factor to understand especially in the christian context to realize oh wow like this is nuanced mm -hmm. um and then soldiers who have ptsd or people that have experienced trauma one of the continual symptoms of trauma or PTSD is panic attacks, anxiety based on different triggers or situations um, that can bring back those memories or those feelings. And so this anxiety is not just, oh, I'm worrying all the time or I have unhealthy thought patterns. It can be that, but it can be so many different things as well. And I think for most of us, as followers of Jesus, uh, one, we should be careful about judging people or diagnosing people or having the answer because you never know what it's rooted in. Um, and then two, we should never feel ashamed to verbalize it because while the root and the experience may be different for different people, a lot of us have or are uh, walking through different moments or seasons of anxiety. I love the, I love that concept as you're talking about it because it, it kind of both, uh, creates that level playing field between all of us, you know, that not that we're in competition with each other. It's not a sport, but you know what I mean? Just that, like, whatever my experience is, there's a way for me, if I really think about it to connect with you and what your experience is, but then also the nuance to say that it's not going to be appropriate for me to say, you know what, I know exactly what you're going through because I really don't. The way that it's impacting you is going to be very different because of all the individual factors that you talked about. So I love that answer. Thank you. And I think for me, I'm curious, you know, just in your role in your ministry, as you've kind of been surveying the landscape of uh, probably more of a Western developed kind of culture, is it something that is on the rise right now, especially among the younger generations? Um, and if so, what what are the reasons for that? You know, are, is there anything that we can attribute and say, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the yellow number nine that's in the Mountain Dew. Like what, what is it that is causing this to be more common if, if that's what you've seen? Yeah. Great, great question. The answer is yes, it's mm -hmm. on the rise. Anxiety is the number one mental health condition 
in the U.S., so our country. And here's an interesting stat. Anxiety conditions have increased by 110% for college age between 2013 and 2021. Wow. 110%. A study came out, Boston University posted in the Journal of Affective Disorders uh, in 2022 that said over 60% of college age students met the criteria for a mental health condition. That's staggering wow. and alarming, right? It's, it's so the norm. It's the norm. It is the norm. Wow. On a college campus, like I pastor in a university city, 40,000 university students, more than half of them uh, on a, just a pastoral experiential relationship level are struggling with mental health hmm. uh, that I talk to. And then just statistically from that study, that would lead us to believe that yeah, more than half on every college, university, campus. Uh, and I would say the younger generations, it's getting worse and worse. So think of high schoolers, middle schoolers, especially living through the pandemic. Uh, one uh, emotional uh, emotional uh, scientist, he calls himself an emotional scientist uh, from Harvard or okay. Yale, actually. Uh, Dr. Mark Brackett, he said that during the pandemic, he did this study what was the number one emotion people were feeling during the pandemic number one emotion anxiety uh, mm. across all generations and uh, he's the leading researcher and scholar on emotions at yale uh, just wow. a brilliant guy so he's he, you know reads everything studies everything on mm. this so i would say if if you have kids this is really important to understand uh, if you have grandkids, this is really important to understand. If you're in high school, college, middle school, you're probably experiencing this, and this is so deeply personal, and understanding how to navigate it is vital. Um, now, reasons, I think there are so many reasons why this is a problem in our current cultural atmosphere. I think, one, there's sensory overload. Okay. We live in a digital world where we're seeing images, we're getting information all the time, we're scrolling through Instagram yeah. and TikTok, and our brains, we're not wired for that much kind of sensory stimuli on a consistent basis. So I think that that's a, that's a major root in the increase of anxiety in kind of our culture in the Western world. I think also there's been a lot of sociological changes over time where, you know, maybe 100, 200 years ago, you kind of knew what city you're going to live in. You knew what vocation you were going to have. It was usually rooted in either your community or your family of origin. My dad was a farmer. I'm going to be a farmer. He had a bit, you know, we have a bank. I'm going to work at the bank. Now, if you're young, you have so many decisions and opportunities in front of you. It's really hard to hone in in a healthy emotional way of like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm going to do because there's just constant options and decisions that you have the opportunity to choose from. And that's a really uh, huge stressor on the young people who are trying to forge their way in this world today. Mm. What college do I go to? What person am I going to marry? What city do I want to live in? What restaurant do I want to go to? 
what what social media app should I invest my time in? It's it's just constant. Yeah, I think that's a part of it too. And then I think you know, like with all of the information coming our way, it's usually negative, so that adds stressors to us. Mm. Um, and then I think we, you know, we're not we haven't grown up in a culture that teaches us how to process and navigate some of these emotions that feel overwhelming. Mm. And I think that's both at a, a cultural secular level, but it's also a Christian culture kind of following Jesus, good theology and practice level as well. Mm. I was uh, earlier today, I actually clicked on the uh, recent National Basketball Association slam dunk champion press conference i don't know if you saw this guy but oh yeah he's a little d-league player who has played i think two or three games actually in the league but he's an incredible dunker but this real young you know hasn't been out of college for very long guy and so his world has just changed you know he's just won this nationally broadcast slam dunk contest he's got these celebrities and athletes celebrating him and they asked him in the press conference they said hey mac you know how how does it feel you know right now how are you feeling and i thought it was so interesting you know he started out saying yeah you know i i I just haven't even had time to process it yet it's just so overwhelming and then he said i haven't gotten a chance yet to look online i'm sure people are really talking about this so i just don't even really know how i feel about it yet and it just kind of connected to me that, yeah, I think what's happening is this young guy has probably processed so much of life through the lens of what is everybody else thinking and what's kind of the thing that people are talking about right now and almost unable to just by himself without that stimuli to search his own heart to say, you know, this is, this is what I'm going through right now. So just a humorous example for what you're talking about with just the stimulation that we experience and uh, a decreased ability in actually processing what's happening uh, within. So, By the way, great slam dunk contest. Yeah, (laughs) it was a good one. Such a good like lens as far as like an illustration or a real life story of how people manage their feelings and emotions through the lens of social media and digital world and what other people think. That's a really great example. And I think it's so true. I mean, there's just so much complexity to this. Thanks for listening to the Jesus Famous Podcast. Before we return to today's episode, here's a brief word from Calvary Global Network about their church planter training program. The gospel is the hope of the world, and the world needs more gospel-centered churches. That's why Cultivate by CGN exists. I'm Clay Worrell, Executive Director of CGN, and I'm here with my friend, Pastor Nick Cady. We want to take a moment to let you know about the Cultivate Church Planter Training Program. Cultivate has created the infrastructure to support the planting of 1,000 new churches in the next decades, starting in 2023. We follow in the footsteps of renowned church planters in the Calvary Chapel movement, embracing and adopting 
adopting their rich heritage of church planting in order to transmit our values, theology, and philosophy of ministry to this generation and for those to come. You know, as church planters ourselves, we understand that planting a church is not an easy task, but we believe it's an essential one. That's why we've created a range of resources to help you and your team prepare for the journey ahead. Our resources are personal, practical, and pastoral. Our program is from six to 24 months and is designed to equip you to lead a gospel-centered community wherever God has called you around the world. We also have a global team of mentors and coaches with thousands of hours of experience planting and pastoring churches, and they're ready to support you in the training phase, the launch phase, and in the post-launch phase of planting a church. With our guidance and support, you can feel confident in your ability to engage the world for Christ. Are you ready to answer the call of church planting? Together we can make a difference and bring the hope of the gospel to communities around the world. If you're ready to take the next steps and learn more about our church planting program, we invite you to visit our website at cultivatechurchplanting.com. So, you know, you've, you've alluded to it a little bit already, you know, just that you've, you've heard some overly simplistic, uh, explanations or responses or, or even, uh, simple, overly simplistic attempts at exposition of various passages in the Bible. And so I'm curious, you know, for you, when, when you think about Jesus, when you think about what the scripture says on a subject like this, what are some of your go-to passages, you know, some of your places that you go to to say, actually, this is really resonating with me to help me with anxiety. Cause I, I know you, I know you're a Bible guy. I know you love the Lord. So how, how has the Christian faith interacted with anxiety for you? Where do you go? Yeah. I think this is the intersection that I feel so passionate about understanding what scripture and the stories in scripture uh, and even the nuance of context in scripture teach about all of these hard experiences that we walk through as followers of Jesus and human beings. Uh, So we, you know, we often focus on one verse when we talk about anxiety, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which is a valuable and important verse. Uh, but I thought, you know, this, this isn't a good hermeneutic to take one verse outside of its context and just use it over and over again as a formative theology around a really hard experience. So I began to investigate every term and word for anxiety in scripture and looking at all those contexts. And I spent probably a year doing this. And I recognize that one, the term anxiety is interesting in scripture. The, the word in the New Testament, which is pretty much synonymous with the idea in the Old Testament is mer uh, to be anxious or mer which means anxiety, worry, or care. The basic idea behind that word, the root idea is to care for someone or something. It's, it's you're a human, you have love for maybe God's people, or you have love for your family members. And innately, because you're a human being creating the image of God, and you have this reality called love, you have concern for people. If you didn't, you wouldn't be human. Uh, if, if you didn't, you wouldn't be wired with emotions. God wired us with emotions. 
So think about a parent. A parent has normal and healthy concerns for their kids, or a spouse has normal and healthy concerns for their spouse. If you think about your kid, you want them to be healthy. You want them to flourish. You want them to be mentally and emotionally healthy. You want them to have community. So you you have that care and concern pretty consistently, I imagine, right. over a lifetime. And that's good. That's right. That's healthy. You you care for things that you love. You have concern for things that you love. So on, on one sense, this term is good and right and healthy. Like we carry a little bit of concern and care for the things and the people that we love. And then Another part of this term is sometimes that care or concern becomes unhealthy. Mm. Sometimes we cross the line from a normal and healthy care and concern to an obsessive and unhealthy concern that's not based in reality. Mm. And I think that's where, you know, scripture talks about some of the, the verses that we often use around anxiety. But what I love about Jesus is like Jesus, Matthew 6, 34, Sermon on the Mount, probably his most famous teaching uh, in history. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Mm -hmm. First of all, love Jesus. He always acknowledged and lived in reality. He's like, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough concern for its own you know, mm. for what you're already dealing with. There's already enough uh, trouble, enough hardships, enough complexity, enough difficulties today. They should probably just focus on today and not worry about tomorrow. Because if you worry about tomorrow, you become paralyzed by two burdens of challenges in human life that you're living with the present and the future. So Jesus, Jesus gave us I think a reality that is encouraging to me because some of us, when we talk about the Bible, it's like, is this really human? Because this seems impossible or this doesn't seem like my reality, but Jesus always spoke in reality. Hmm. So as I began this journey and thought through this terminology in the context, I realized that there's three categories of anxiety in the Bible. One, the Bible talks about normal anxieties or concerns that all of us feel. That's Paul. Uh, the same guy who wrote Philippians 4, 6, and 7 also wrote 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight that he had as a leader of churches a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Yep. And then he also wrote Philippians two twenty eight where he said, I'm going to send one of my coworkers that I may be less anxious. So the same guy who wrote Philippians 4, 6, and 7, this is kind of, you know, a good hermeneutic. There's context. There's circles of context. One is like the immediate passage. Another one's the book. Another one's the, you know, uh, New Testament. Another one's the entire <laughs> biblical storyline around that theme. So the same guy who wrote Philippians 4, 6, 7, two chapters earlier said, I I'm a little anxious about what's going on in the Philippian church. And that's okay. It was normal. It was good concern. He felt it. He named it. And it wasn't unhealthy. The second you know, category of anxiety that you see in the Bible are unhealthy anxieties or obsessive concerns that can overtake us. And that's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Copy. 
So Philippians lives in two categories when it talks about anxiety. Like, oh, you know, you're a pastor, you love this church, you're carrying some burdens, you feel a little of anxiety about it, but it's okay because it's normal. Then Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is you're living in the future, you're obsessing over things that aren't are reality, you're, you're becoming uh, paralyzed by fear or worry about potential persecution that could be happening or problems within the church. These what-if scenarios have become a perpetual state in some of you. And so I want to encourage you not to live in that cycle of obsessive, unhealthy concern. Mm. And when I read Philippians 4, 6, and 7, I find it to be so helpful because I don't read it as a rebuke. Um, I don't read it as a statement of condemnation. I read it as a loving pastor through the lens of the heart of God saying, it's not healthy for you to carry all this. Talk to me about everything, and I am going to grant you a peace that transcends your circumstance, circumstances as you follow me in the city of Philippi as a follower of Jesus. So I think it's just a beautiful invitation to talk to God and to allow God to intersect in the stresses, in the concerns, in the pressures of life. And I think that's really what he wants to do. And so that that verse really helps me. The mm. example of Paul really helps me because I'm like, oh, I'm normal. I'm actually not, uh, you know, lacking spiritually or devoid of like uh, spiritual maturity if I'm processing through anxiety. It, it was actually normal with one of my heroes in the faith, Paul. Uh, and then there's a third category as well. And this category leaves room for suffering and deep, painful human experiences that entail feelings of stress or anxiety. Mm. So my favorite example of this is 1 Samuel 1. Hannah, you know her situation. She couldn't have a baby. Uh, and in that society and culture, if you couldn't get pregnant, you basically were a social outcast in your community. There was something wrong with you. People you know, looked at you with kind of a negative lens. Uh, you, you, in a lot of ways, were an outcast with whoever you were married with because socially that was a major problem mm -hmm. and you couldn't get pregnant. And so Hannah was under deep distress and pain and suffering on multiple uh, fronts. And she's praying. She's crying out to God. And in 1 Samuel 1, 15 and 16, it says that, she was speaking out of her great anxiety. Mm. Uh, she was she was just living through a crisis. She had pain. She was suffering, and there were multiple factors of of suffering that she just cried out to God, and she had a lot of anxiety, and it was okay. There was nothing mm. wrong with it. It wasn't unspiritual. She wasn't struggling spiritually. She wasn't not trusting God. It was just a part of her suffering and her pain. And it wasn't a moral experience. And for me, that's really freeing. Because mm. somebody that is dealing with trauma or abuse or you know, walking through a physical, medical condition of pain and suffering that is experiencing anxiety, it's not a spiritual issue. It's not a moral issue. It's not, oh, wow, something's wrong with your 
you know, relationship with Jesus, because you're experiencing this, it's just a part of suffering in this broken world. Mm. So I think all of those verses help, help me to gain nuanced perspective, but also I think it shows us that the Bible is deeply human and leaves room for some of these emotional experiences that are hard to process. And I think it also normalizes it as well. That doesn't mean that God wants us to live in a perpetual state of um, anxiety based on ruminating on unhealthy thoughts. That's Philippians 4. But sometimes anxiety is outside of that context mm-hmm. and lens. It's, mm-hmm. it's another lane or it's another facet or category that we haven't thought about. And I, I, like you said, also the person of Jesus, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed three times, uh, Matthew's gospel gives us three or four descriptive Greek terms used. One of them means to be anxious. Mm. So Jesus felt anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane as he anticipated the suffering of the cross. And I'm like, oh, thank yeah. you, Jesus. Like, yeah. there's this connection and understanding that you have with our humanity and your humanity where now i don't have to feel ashamed as i as i'm processing painful moments in my life yeah and i think as a pastor i I know i've seen it plenty of times where someone in the fellowship is going through a incredibly hard time you know they they've lost someone close to them or a relationship has become fractured or they're going through a trauma, any of a number of things. And I'm always sensitive to when I, I can tell that they they almost feel this sense of guilt about feeling some of those, um, negative or dark or confusing or depressed or anxious, kind of thoughts you know they're almost I've seen people who are almost apologetic in grieving the death of a beloved person in their lives and as a pastor I I always want to be there to let them know that's normal that's good it's necessary it's part of the way that you're going to honor this person or the reality of this situation but it's also needed for you as you walk through this. The Lord's with you. He wants to go through this with you. But for some reason, and I think it's maybe, um, you know, I, I don't know that there's a whole lot of pastors and preachers out there who actually think like you, you'll, you should never be sad, you know, or you should never have a concern in your life. But if we're not careful when we come to those passages in scripture, like a Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and we don't do the hard work of having a healthy hermeneutic like you walked us through, then we can misrepresent and then people walk away with this feeling that, okay, well, I just, I guess the commission is don't be anxious, you know, but pointing out even just the the reality of Christ, the sinless son of God who never committed any violation of God's perfect and holy law that even he himself um, felt that anxiety, that pressure. How could he not? 
as a man in that position in the Garden of Gethsemane, but it wasn't sin. It was just human. So I love that, Wesley. That's that's a that's beautiful. I want to ask you, um, you know, for some of those like practical, biblically informed um, aids that might be helpful to a person who in various categories of the anxiety as you broke it down uh, helps for them to kind of pull out of that or manage it or deal with it. But before you get into that, I want to double back you. When you were telling your story, you were used a trigger word for me. You talked about not having the margin to be able to process what you were going through and just the speed of life as a young pastor with everything growing so exponentially. And I was wondering if you could flesh that out a little bit for us. What is margin and how is that helpful to a person who is predisposed uh, to feeling anxiety and that state of overwhelm? Yeah, great question. Uh, Margin to me is intentionally creating space and healthy rhythms in our life that give us rest and replenishment. So uh, margin could be, you know, every night I go to bed for eight, you know, seven to nine hours, which medically that's, that's what most of us need. There's a few people that need, you know, four to six, but there's a few of those like Kobe Bryant could get four hours of sleep and he'd be at the gym at like 3 a.m. That's not me. It's probably not you, but maybe it is. Um, I'm no Kobe. Yes, not not many of us are uh, for (laughs) sure. So that could be, you know, being intentional with your sleep. Margie could be, I don't have to win the world overnight. Like I can be slow and intentional and thorough over a period of time. I don't have to do everything at once for everyone. And it also may mean that you say no to things like you create space by recognizing you're not a robot or a machine that you can't do everything all the time as a leader that you can only do a few things really effectively. So you hone into that. Um, So it's rhythms of rest and replenishment. It's the ability to say no and create like create humanity in you where you're like, Oh, wow. Jesus didn't heal everyone. Jesus didn't do everything all the time for everyone. Even he broke away uh, Mm -hmm. for prayer and to be with a father and to be in quiet spots on a consistent basis. And if Jesus did that, then I need that too, because I'm Mm -hmm. not Jesus. Um, I remember when I met with Wayne, he said, Wesley, people love you so much, they'll kill you. Mm -hmm. And I said, whoa. What do you mean by that? He said, they love you so much. They want you to be a part of everything. They want to go to you for everything. They want you to be to be a part of everything. And you have to create a culture where you're not the answer for everything for everyone. Hmm. And that was a really helpful concept in my mind that's always stuck that, oh, I'm just a human. Like I need rest, I need Sabbath, I need vacations, uh, I need to be attuned to how I'm doing. And when I'm not doing well with stress, 
Maybe I need to take a step back and just take a couple of days to like pray, to journal, to think, to process my emotions. So I think all of that is, you know, a random picture of margin to me. It's just intentionality mm -hmm. uh, with how we're living so that we are living well and feeling well in our soul and in our body. So that would be the first thing. For me, that's huge. A lot of my anxiety is rooted in um, kind of my levels of pressure and stress mm. that I've learned. But I know other people, their anxiety is rooted in medical conditions and they're not stressed out all the time or they, do not, they don't have too many things going on and too much pressure. So all of us need to figure out the root of that in our in our lives. Got it. Got it. So it's is that, not is that, that helpful? Yeah, totally. It's not the answer for every form of anxiety, but yes. for some, it is a good thing to cultivate. And if I could double down on my, that question before you move into some practical aids for people, I'm thinking about those young people you talked about earlier. And I think what you were describing was decision fatigue. Um, they have so many decisions in front of them and high stakes decisions too. And um, I guess in my mind, I'm just thinking through, yeah, if, if margin is helpful for a person who's prone to anxiety and really feeling that pressure and it's that kind of anxiety for them, I'm curious how a younger person can um, maybe cut back decisions somehow to where they don't have as much of that input stream and overwhelm where they're having to make all these choices all the time. I mean, obviously you got to choose where you're going to go to college and what you're going to major in and where you're going to move and all that kind of stuff. That societal thing is not going to change. We're not going to go back to just doing whatever your dad did or your mom did like it was 200 years ago. But, um, I guess just putting you on the spot, do you have any thoughts on how a younger person can set up some of that margin in their lives? Yeah, I think that's such a important question, especially in the context of like mental health in our modern day, because the younger generations are dealing with it more than, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the older generations as the generations uh, move upward. I think part of the margin that can be created in young people today with all the stimuli and decision fatigue is consistently and intentionally disconnecting. Mm. Part of the decisions that are being made are not even like intentional. It's just like you have so many things going on in a day uh, with our social and digital world and we just go so fast life is so hectic and fast paced and hurried. I would say a lot of young people are living like that. And if they start to create rhythms of disconnection where they're like, Oh, I'm going to put my phone on the charger for two hours mm. and I'm going to, you know, go on a walk or go on a yes. run or exercise or sit with my family and enjoy a game or whatever it is. And just disconnect from, all of this stuff that is constantly processing through me, a lot of the thoughts we think, we're not like trying to think them. We're just naturally thinking them because there's so many things happening uh, in a day. So I think a little bit of disconnection. I think disconnection will help us to be present and enjoy what's in front of us more. 
mm-hmm. and maybe curtail some of those decisions that are made on a day-to-day basis because there's just so much going on. I also think that disconnecting can be intentional margin to actually sit with our soul before God, like mm-hmm. to, to, to understand what's going on inside of us, to understand the emotions that we're feeling, the process through that, and like a quiet space like Jesus practiced, and to to bring those things to God more uh, in an undistracted, unhurried manner, uh, I think our soul needs to connect with God more without all the other stuff around us. And so that has to be intentional in our day. Because you know, even for us as pastors, that's sometimes hard because there's so much going on. I don't think we can be well in our soul without that. And I think that we have to, we just have to lean in to say, okay, my soul can't be healthy. Uh, and my soul is overstimulated without some quiet space to break away before God and to sit with God and to sit with my own, you know, mind, emotions, decisions, mm-hmm. things that have been formed inside of me through life. And just to connect that to God and talk to him about it and let him encourage my heart and enjoy his presence uh, and guide me, give me wisdom for, for the important decisions that I have to make. For me, that that's so foundational and incredibly urgently needed in our culture, uh, especially for the younger generations. And part of this is unintentional. It's not like they're like, oh, I want all of this no. stimuli and decision-making. It's like, this is the world that we've grown up with. We don't know anything else, and we have no idea how to navigate it or manage it in a healthy way. Yes. Yeah, they're just walking into it. Well, I, I love that subject. I could go on and on on that rabbit trail, but I would love to hear from you, Wesley, what are some of the things when you know, a person comes to you for, for counsel, you know, they maybe express to you in a moment of honesty, one of these facets of anxiety that they're wrestling with. Um, I don't know if the advice you give or the aids that you offer to them are the same across the board for different versions of anxiety, but I'm curious to pick your brain about that. What are some of those um, best practices, if you will, or aids, if you will, that are helpful to someone who's battling with anxiety? Yeah. Every, every person's story is unique. Every person's experience is unique. So the first thing that I do is just lean into that uniqueness mm-hmm. and try to learn and understand as much as I can about that person, their story, what they're going through, symptoms, often are just surface level and you want to get to the source. So I think, I think really in a healthy way, listening and understanding and probing a little bit is helpful rather than just being like, Oh, I know the answer. For example, I talked to somebody recently that was really struggling with anxiety and I processed through a lot of what I just said. And I, I, you know, offered some thoughts and I asked them if they had done that. And they're like, Oh yeah, I've been trying to do that for a year now. And then I finally said, you know, it, it would probably be really, really helpful if you went to your doctor and got these tests done. 
um, that could reveal something taking place, you know, biologically, physiologically in your body uh, that may be the root of anxiety. So some people, you need to go to the doctor, right? right? Like there might be something biologically happening inside of you because we live in a broken world and we all suffer um, and that you just need to uncover. Uh, I, I think that's a great route for some people. Other people, it's like, oh, you know, I deal with anxiety once in a while. I feel like I'm sinning or I'm doing something wrong. And I just need to say, oh, let me tell you the story of scripture. It's actually mm -hmm. quite normal. And it's a part of my life. So sometimes normalizing it sets people free. Just having somebody to converse with and to feel safe and heard and understood and affirmed in a way that's non-condemning can be so helpful, life-giving, um, and, and give people a sense of freedom that they hadn't felt before. I always tell people this, you can love Jesus and struggle with anxiety. Mm -hmm. You can love Jesus and feel anxiety at the same time. This is not a indicator that you have something wrong with you spiritually. Uh, and so I think that gives people a bit of freedom as well. And then some people they're dealing with unhealthy cycles, uh, of thinking and over time they can change those patterns of thinking. Our brain is really wired by patterns and we get these default patterns. And some of you guys understand neuroplasticity, but our brain is really malleable. So we can change our thoughts. God wired that into us. Like he gives us the opportunity to change unhealthy patterns of thinking toward healthy patterns of thinking. And so I'll teach people what healthy patterns of thinking look like. Uh, I think Philippians 4, 8 is actually an incredible verse that gives descriptives of like what healthy thinking mm -hmm. looks like. And I think that's the context of that whole passage. And then I help people to understand that, you know, there is rumination that takes place in our brain. And sometimes it's not even intentional. It's just the default mode that we developed over time. Maybe it's rooted in your family of origin. Maybe it's not, but it's rooted in some sort of pattern of thinking over time that God can help you to deconstruct and then to construct a really, really healthy internal dialogue inside of your mind. So I think that's, that's something too. And then sometimes people are just suffering and they feel a lot of stress and anxiety, like a loss in, of loss of a loved one. Um, loss of a job, a lot of grief will have anxiety and stress coexisting inside of somebody. So in those cases, I'm just like, I'm here for you. I love mm -hmm. you. God loves you. You know, God, God, although this might be a part of this season of your life and you're going to feel these experiences, God wants to be involved in all of this. So you're not alone. I'm here for you as a human and you're not alone. God is here for you. Cast all your cares and your stressors and your anxieties and your burdens on God because he cares for you. He's a loving father to you right now. And what you're feeling is totally normal. Anybody in your situation is going to experience the same type of realities or symptoms. Mm -hmm. So I just want you to know you've got some safe places to process. Yeah. I love that, Wesley. I've got 
two more questions for you. And one of them is related to what you just shared there at the end of your uh, answer. But before I ask it, um, my first kind of wrap up question is, um, I'm curious in your experience, are there times where um, when it comes to the mental health space, um, where the answer isn't really at the end of the day, a solution, uh, because, um, you know, the different avenues of potential help have been explored, um, whether it's medicinal, um, physical, uh, psychological, spiritual, crying out to God, you know, prayer, the alignment of the spiritual life, you know, all of that. And someone is just, for lack of a better word, tormented. You know, I, I, I don't mean it in the demonic sense, but just in that, you know, I've got this part of me that I, I wish it wasn't there and I wish I didn't have this struggle, but I but I do. I lo- I'm a Christian. I love the Lord, but I'm just not getting the relief that I would love to see. I'm curious in your mind and in your experience, are, are there just times where it's, uh, you kind of recognize this is going to be part of your human experience. You know, we're in a broken world. We're on this side of the, the, uh, full expression of God's kingdom. So you're tasting a little part of his kingdom today and one day you'll be like Jesus. One day you'll be free of all of this. But this might be, I, I don't think the phrase your cross to bear is actually representative of what Paul means when, or what the Lord means when he says to take up your cross. But it's just going to be your experience. Unless God intervenes, let's go through this together because you're probably going to have this as part of your life and experience. Um, has that been something that you've seen uh, as you've ministered in this space? Absolutely. I think that's the already not yet reality paradigm that we see in the story of scripture. Like you said, like we have not experienced total renewal and redemption of all things that God has created. We're still living in this redemptive stage in God's, plan of history which means we live in a broken world and people experience different forms of suffering so some people do experience mental health conditions perpetually Um, i would say most people can find healing some people this is going to be a part of your story of suffering for example if you have a brain condition or some sort of brain damage oftentimes this will be a part of kind of coexisting with that physical uh, biological damage there's this emotion um, that you feel as well in your body this feeling in your body of anxiety that that happens or occurs uh, over a long period of time so i would say absolutely some some people's form of suffering is not healed, solved uh, in this moment. And I think that's a really good theology, but also a good way to like personally relate to people. When people are suffering, they don't always need a doctor or a solution. Sometimes they've gone to every avenue 
and they need to find social support and spiritual support, which are incredible indicators of mental and emotional well-being. Mm. If people have a safe God that they can go to as they walk through their suffering, as they live through their suffering, because sometimes suffering is a long journey for, for a lot of people. It's not solvable, fixable. God hasn't chosen to heal it, so it's a part of their life story and reality. So I think that if they have a safe God to go to and safe social network, which church, the people of Jesus, good friends, family members, that they can just continually find support and encouragement and love in the midst of their pain, it is vital, necessary, and so helpful. So I think those avenues actually do help a person, although it's not necessarily solving their particular disorder or challenge that they're facing mentally and emotionally. Yeah. I love that. It gets them, helps get them through. And just the thought that instead of the, instead of saying I'm not well, being able to say I'm not yet well, you know, but in Christ, I know one day I will be, uh, I love that, that hope. Can I have one more thing that I just Please thought do. of for young people? Uh, we used to be the young guys. Now, now we're, we can't call each other young anymore. No way. <laughs> so we say things like the younger generation. <laughs> they used to call me the, you know, young pastor, or young leader, not anymore. Um, I think that God wired into creation three things that are so vital for mental and emotional health. Sleep which a lot of young people aren't getting consistent sleep. Mm. So it's affecting them biologically, physiologically, mentally, emotionally movement. God told Adam, go create uh, co-rule, name the animals, take the raw resources and build a beautiful culture and world out of it. Like he was moving, he was doing mm -hmm. so movement in a sedentary society is so important. And then food, uh, our God wired our body to such an extent that our whatever we're putting in our body, as far as food is concerned, goes into our stomach, 500 neurons in our stomach, I mean 500 million. Uh, then you have a vagus nerve, which is communicating to your brain. So what we're eating actually goes into our gut, which a lot of uh, people are calling our second brain. Mm. Uh, and all of that is affecting our mood um, and neurochemically in our brain. And I, I say all of that to say those three things are really vital. Like what we're putting in our bodies, movement in a world that is digital and sedentary uh, and consistent healthy sleep patterns are so important to feel well mentally and emotionally. And sometimes for a person, it's just like, oh, I've been sleeping five to six hours a night for months and months. And like every day I wake up feeling anxious and every night I go to bed feeling anxious. Those three things are incredibly helpful and oftentimes healing in this whole discussion. And all of that God created. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's brilliant. Yeah, I love that. For as smart as we get to discover, oh, it breaks down to these three really basic things. <laughs> That's just so great. And and. So much of the stimulation that you talked about earlier draws us away from those things. 
So true. We we forget to eat or we stay up too late or, you know, that type of thing. So I love that. Thank you for adding that. I'd love to wrap it up, Wesley, with um, one last question about the Philippians 4 passage and then we'll do a closing exhortation. I'll give one and then you can give one. But I thought it'd be great to just kind of conclude by going full circle and going back to that Philippians uh, 4, 6, and 7 passage, you know, be don't be anxious for anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And I think um, as you were describing the oversimplistic and, uh, you know, version of that of teaching that passage or uh, ignoring context or nuance in any way I felt like what you were describing was like when uh, someone is reading maybe the label or the description of what a what a medicine can do and you see these like off book off label uses that sometimes people use it for it's like hey these don't have uh, physician approval yet, you know, like you can try to use it for that, but, but we don't recommend that you use it for that. And I think there's a lot of people using Philippians four, six, and seven in that off label kind of way. So what I would love to do is just kind of come back to it with, Hey, it's a, it's a beautiful passage of scripture. So how do you give it as a, in a, as a, as a proper prescription for uh, someone who is battling that unhealthy obsession version of anxiety, how do you use a, that passage to, to encourage them and help redirect them? Yeah, I think um, first and foremost, I think that scripture communicates God's desire to be connected to all the hard stuff in our life. And I think a person that is battling anxiety needs to know you can talk to God about everything. Like he literally wants to intersect with all the challenging parts of your life, all the suffering, all the pain, all the, the emotions that are heavy and overwhelming that you're dealing with. So I, I encourage people that way. Like you might, even if it's like outside the context of, maybe like obsessive concerns, maybe somebody medically is dealing with anxiety and they just need to know, like God wants to be there for you. You can talk to him about everything openly and honestly that you're processing and his presence is going to do things in inside of your heart, your soul, uh, that nothing else in this world can do. Um, and, and, it's just a beautiful promise for all of us, whatever context of hardship that we're facing. But I I would say for the person that is dealing with unhealthy patterns and cycles of thinking uh, rooted in worry or fear or potential what if scenarios, I, I really try to help people practically begin to assess their thoughts and I have them write down like, okay, you know, in a week period of time daily, write down what are healthy, consistent thought patterns that I notice in my life and what are unhealthy. Begin to become aware of those thought patterns. um, And after some time of writing that down, now we can categorize those 
Like, okay, what, what is going on here that is leading you to think this way on a consistent basis? And I think ultimately the spiritual lesson there is, one, be aware of those patterns of thinking in your life. But two, instead of living in unreality, possible reality, potential reality, maybe not even reality for you, by creating a story in your mind of what's going to happen in the future where Jesus said not to do that, focus on today, walk with Jesus today, allow God to be the lead in your life today, and know that even within all the stuff that's going on inside of us, uh, you can talk to him about all of that every single day, and he will give you peace, even in the midst of the hard stuff that you're processing through. So that's what I would say to somebody. I, I do think that verse uh, is so beautiful and helpful and healing and paints such a great picture of God and our relationship with him in life that I often do use that in this conversation, but I make sure to talk about the nuance so people don't feel condemned. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Wesley, it's been awesome chatting with you. I got so many more questions and uh, you've thanks for the work that you've put into this over the years to really think through the subject and I've really enjoyed this conversation and I hope for those of you listening you guys have been blessed by it uh, as well and my closing exhortation to all of you that are listening is not to go it alone you know this is not uh, one of those things in life that you just need to grin and bear it um, as Wesley talked about, this is a common experience for so many of us, but even if it wasn't, uh, we're not meant to face this life on our own, by ourselves, in solitude. Uh, we need other people, and I know that for some that can be a scary thing, perhaps because of your makeup, perhaps because of your past perhaps because you've even experienced unhealthy versions of Christian community. I'm sure anybody who's been part of the church for any real length of time, you've experienced those less than perfect versions of community. But keep faithfully looking for those safe places, safe communities that you can explore God and what's happening with you in relationship to him and your world uh, better. So I'd encourage you, don't struggle alone. Reach out to somebody. Let them know what's actually happening in your life. And um, that can be such a great aid to you in, uh, in the feelings of anxiousness that are coming into your life. So that's my closing exhortation. Wesley, what would you say? I would say it's okay to be human and follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. And... God often does beautiful relational work in our life in the midst of those hard things that we're trying to go through. So don't, don't ever think that God's ashamed of what you're going through. If you read through the Psalms, the psalmists were raw and real and honest in how they prayed and worshiped God. And you have the opportunity and the freedom to do the same. God loves you. God knows everything that you're processing and he cares deeply about you. 